Blog Talk Radio. Live to see it, friends. I'm Phil Bowermaster, and this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of the Speculist weblog, and you can find us online at speculist.com, S-P-E-C-U-L-I-S-T.com. Fast Forward Radio and the Speculist deal with positive change, accelerating change, uh, Neat stuff that's happening, the, uh, the future as it unfolds, emerging technologies, and other fun things. And with me, as always, to talk about these topics is my co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I'm great. How are you doing? I'm excellent. I'm excellent. Basically, if, if you like geeky things, you'll like this show. Well, I think so. I yeah. think that, you know, we, we aim to please. And, <laughs> and you know, we've, I think we've taken geeky stuff and we've broadened its audience a little bit. That's what I like to Yeah, we... Yeah, and, but we were geeks before being a geek, a geek was cool, right? I, I know I was. <laughs> one of the great surprises of my life is that <laughs> yeah. being a geek ever uh, ever, ever got even a, even a little bit cool. And, and we're going to be getting into that a little bit uh, a little bit later. We're going to we're going to be talking about geek culture and uh, what what it means to be a geek today as as opposed to what it meant uh, a few years ago. But uh, first, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, hope hope you had a pleasant weekend. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, it was and it was really good because um, uh, the, my college team, LSU, won the Southeast Eastern Conference, and uh, real proud of them. And believe it or not, Phil, I, you know I had written off any chances of a national championship. Well, we said last week you said it could. Be yeah, so. it, it just simply was out of, out of the cards, and, and according to the experts, there was no real chance. Well, it, uh, the right teams lost, and LSU won, so that there is a, there is a small chance now. Of them playing for the national championship again. Well, so they caught a break. They caught a break and they won again. And they won, and uh, they won their conference, and they'll be in the Sugar Bowl, and uh, maybe playing for the national championship also in New Orleans. So we know who they're playing in the uh, Sugar Bowl. Um, I'm sure someone does, (laughs) but I I don't have that in front of me. Someone wants to call in or uh, join us in the chat room and let us know. We'd uh, we'd appreciate that information. Well, I have no football news to report. Uh, The Broncos. Didn't manage to pull it out once again this week against uh, those <sighs> those wonderful Oakland Raiders, uh, our all-time favorite team. So uh, I, I spent the weekend, you know, I was just doing a lot of holiday stuff. Friday night was um, uh, my wife's company's holiday party, and uh, so I had to get, you know, all dolled up and be on her arm and, you know, try to make a good impression and everything. It's fun to compare because next week we've got uh, – my company's holiday party. So we got these back to back on Friday nights, and we compare who's got the uh, who's got the better one. I think hers will will end up having been by far and away the much better one. So, well, but, and, and and by better you mean uh, what exactly? What, what well, what, okay, let me tell you where they had it. They had it at Invesco Field at Mile High. Okay. And what they did was they just they took the whole club level of the stadium and just dedicated it to this party. So it was nice. They had a dance floor going. They had. Food. They had beverages flowing. They had a whole. Uh, it was casino night, so they had all these, uh, uh, you know, craps tables and blackjack. And uh, I was playing my game roulette, which I believe I've mentioned on the blog before. That um, although you know 
theoretically, it's mathematically impossible to beat roulette. I've still got this idea somewhere in my head that uh, that, that I think I can beat roulette. So, uh, <laughs> more power to you. <laughs> I experimented <laughs> some more with, with, with you know, just because mathematically it's not possible. I don't let that slow me down. You know, so <laughs> we, we, you know, we, we played some roulette. I just, just had a, had a really good time. But she, see, she's kind of important in her company. I'm just kind of a schmo in mine. So this was, this was kind of the important one, and I had to be on my best behavior. And you know, well, it, you know, if you're a schmo, you know, um, chances are you could, you know, if you impress the right person next week, you know, it might be actually more important for your party. Right. Well, if she impresses the right person, who knows? This yeah, is, uh, yeah, this, that's this, true. This, this, because I've had my shot. Let's face it, <laughs> it's it's not gone anywhere. But uh, so anyhow, I, all this all this seasonal stuff. The, the thing I was going to tell you was uh, we uh, while I had the game on was putting out all of our uh, Christmas decorations, and we must have gone through. I'm going to say. Uh, uh, $150 worth of extension cords this weekend, okay? I mean, it's like, you know, the fourth or fifth trip to Home Depot, and you just walk in, and they're all like, oh, hey, you're back for more extension cords? What's your deal, you know? It's like, we, you know, we think we've got it all figured out, and then it's like, oh, we need a couple more. Well, she wants some green, you know. Oh, you know, we need this kind. And so I spent a good part of the weekend um, putting up different lights and displays and all these kind of things. But extension cords, all right, they come in packaging, and you take them out of the packaging, and you think, well, here's one end, here's the other end. I ought to be able to just pull the two ends and have a nice straight cord, right? Right. Even if it's an 8-foot cord or if it's a 25-foot cord or if it's a 100-foot cord, whatever, I ought to just be able to pull those two ends and have a nice straight cord. But no. It knots up on you or what? Yeah, you pull those two ends, and you get like the Gordian knot. Okay. <laughs> and I mean, I had different brands. I had you know different kinds of packaging, and it always was the same. Every single one of these, I had to like do this thing where you pull it out and you flip it all the way around, and you pull it out and you flip it all the way, and you have to do like you know twenty five of these just to get the thing out and straight. And what what it occurred, what I started thinking about, uh, I don't know, on the third or fourth cord as I'm doing this, is I was thinking, okay, now Stephen could probably look at this cord and immediately understand what you need to do <laughs> to pull it straight apart because you know how to solve Rubik's Cube. Well, I tell you, I'm a, I'm a pretty mechanistic uh, solver of the Rubik's Cube. I, I, you know, it's, it's, it, for me, it, it's like following a recipe in a cookbook. I, you know, a, a great chef, you can put them in a the kitchen with ingredients and they can make a great meal with no cookbook in sight. But, you know, with me, I need to have a cookbook. Okay. So what you're telling me is you know how to solve Rubik's cube, but you don't really understand how to. Solve exactly. It. I know the. I know the. You know. I know. Uh, you know a way to solve the Rubik's cube based on just you know follow do this at this point and do that at that point and you know and ultimately you've solved the Rubik's cube. I have. You know. I have no great in-depth understanding of that cube and and actually learning how to do it. All it's really what it's managed to do is impress me as to the genius of those who really do understand those things. So what I need is the guy who wrote that book. I bet he could get an extension cord. You know what? I bet he opens an extension cord and just yeah, just, it and it, it comes right through. You know, I wonder why they do it that way because you know it'd be real easy to package it where it would come out without a problem. You um, would think, you know. I mean, that's what it, I think it, 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 it myself. It, it makes me think that they did it on purpose. Maybe for some reason, maybe they figured if you you'd have to take it out of the packaging completely in order to, you know, you couldn't slip it back easily into the packaging. Therefore, you couldn't take it back so easy. Maybe I, the, maybe I don't know. Like right, I don't or know. It's, it's OSHA. I think it's an OSHA regulation that <laughs> that it must be hard. Or it have to be hard to unravel. <laughs> 
but uh, whatever it was, that was that was my biggest frustration of the. I got to give you a toy recommendation. Uh, uh, if you've got a geek on your Christmas list, you've got to get. Well, anybody really uh, would enjoy this. Uh, it's a it's a game called Say What. Okay. Say what? Say what with a question mark? Okay. It's a board game or what kind of a game is it? No, it's like an electronic game. Okay. okay. Uh, and it's, it's got five balls lined up. Okay. And these are uh, these little balls uh, fit into this you know little grooves. Okay. And each and what happens is you turn it on and it and asks are you ready and you know you hit a button to say yes and then it. It, it lists out a phrase, you know, now is the time for all good men to, you know, come to the aid of their country or something like that. Right. And, but it'll be, a, it'll be a phrase and it's all mixed up. It'll be in country, come to the aid, you know, and each ball lights up for a certain portion of the phrase. But it's all mixed up. And then you've got to move those balls around. Hmm. To straighten out the phrase. Oh, to get them in the right order. That's right. I and so you have to you have to have memorized in your mind what part of the phrase uh, each ball represents, and then you move it around to to do it. And then of course, you know, each round gets a little faster, and you got less time to do it, and uh, maybe the phrase is a little more complex. It's it's fun. That I mean, sounds it, like a lot of fun. What's it called again? Say what? Say what? Yes. Uh, say what? Um, it's it's a question mark at the end of it. Yeah, we can put a little Amazon link for people to order that. Oh yeah, it's a, uh, I got it from I got it from my kid. Um, he, he, you know, it was, um, it, it was sort of a birthday thing, and so okay. yeah, he's one of these unlucky kids that have a a birthday. December birthday. Yeah, a birthday real close. So anyway, yeah, I can highly recommend it. We've already had a lot of fun with it. Well, now how unlucky is it? Did you tell him that was his birthday gift and his Christmas gift? <laughs> I've never asked him to take a present out from under the tree and say, "There's your present." <laughs> your birthday present. Yeah, you know, good luck getting another one under the tree for Christmas. Um, no, I, I, you know, I try. I've tried to make that as pain-free as possible that his birthday is this time of the year. But uh, you're a good dad. Well, you know, the extended family is not always that easy on them. But. You know, you know what that sounds like uh, when you describe it. Remember Simon? Yeah. That sounds. This is like the you know the Simon the, Says and all that. Yeah. No, nice. no. There was a game called Simon, and it was just it was like one of the earliest electronic games back in the '80s, and it was just this pattern of colors, and you and it would punch it out, and then you would punch them back in, and then it would do a more complicated one, and you would have to repeat it, and then it would do a much more complicated one, and you would have to repeat it. It didn't have the same, uh, obviously it wasn't as sophisticated as the game you're talking about, but it's the same kind of principle, where it goes faster, and you're having to, uh, you're having to deal with more and more uh, variables as you, as you go. Yeah. But that's probably before your time. So. I think we may have our guest already on the line, uh, Phil. Um, uh, that doesn't mean, I mean, let's proceed however you'd like, but I, I wanted to let you know that. Okay, well, I told our guest that we'd be bringing her on after uh, a very special feature we're bringing back for the second time this evening, and so why don't we go straight into that then? All right. It's time for yet another... <laughs> I hope I didn't talk over it. <laughs> yeah, I think you, I think Play you it did. one more time. Better, better do it one more time. All right, well, just, just for fun, let's do it again. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so our Tales of the Paranormal this evening. i got a really good one for you, Stephen. Okay. We've got the Association for the Study of Unexplained Phenomena has completed work on a prototype device that they claim to be a working telephone to the dead. All right? Sounds handy. Oh, yeah. Almost a year in the making. Uh, <laughs> almost a year in the making. It's been almost a year. <laughs> the, the R&D team at ASUP, now ASUP, of course, that's the Association for the Study of Unexplained Phenomena, 
They say that the preliminary testing suggests that the box does appear to create coherent words and phrases. In fact, team engineer Ron Ricketts has reported that while still working on the device on a workbench with the system running, the speaker said his own name very clearly on three separate occasions. Well, that proves it. <laughs> this guy, he's working alone, and he's hearing his name being spoken by a box. So it yeah. sounds to me like absolute proof of the paranormal. Well, I look forward to reading the article in the journal Nature. Yeah, well, it should be, should be coming up soon. Um, <laughs> oh, the, man. The group is uh, making no advanced claims for what they call the mini box. Apparently, this is a smaller version of... Uh, uh, of, of a telephone that was invented, uh, to, uh, a telephone for speaking to the dead that was invented some time ago, except they say that it will begin field testing of the unit and it will be made available to anyone seriously interested in studying it. And it has a patent pending, but, but it gets better because the ASAP's director of operations, April Slaughter, is that a great name? I mean, we've got uh, the names of these people, Ron Ricketts, April Slaughter. <laughs> Well, um, I guess fun. I can't help that, but oh well. Well, no, people can't help their names. It's just they're so appropriate. It's just April yeah. Slaughter. She's part of the ASAP, you know. Okay. Uh, she's explained that the group is not in the business of selling technology, but the mini box will be made available to anyone interested by the first of the year through a separate company that specializes in high-tech gear for paranormal investigators. See, now, okay. if we had any ambition at all, Stephen, we would have started a, a company that specializes in high-tech gear for paranormal investigators <laughs> some time ago. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, like I say, we uh, we have compared ourselves to the Ghostbusters in the past, and all we need is some gadgets. Uh, and that, I, I think can... we just need a few good gadgets. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's all we need. I think we need one of these phones. Yeah. And then we could get the dead on the line. Talk about your guests. We could have, oh, yeah. like, Elvis on the show. For uh, that would be great. The, the story goes on, it, it, uh, it, they say they got uh, plans to test the machine, at, this, this is obviously a few weeks ago, because they said they were going to test it uh, November 16th at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park. And you know, what's the Stanley Hotel famous for? Why, why, that, why that place? Well, you know, that was the inspiration for Stephen King's novel, uh, The Stand. So it's, it's um, famous, uh, you know, renowned as kind of a haunted hotel. And if I'm not mistaken, the ghost hunters were just there on Halloween. They did a live show there on Sci-Fi. You know, I think Michael Sargent mentioned that on a uh, on a prior show, uh, yeah. Fast, Fast Forward Radio. He mentioned that they were out there recently. Well, I'll tell you what. After I read the story, I got so excited that I did a big Google search and I've looked all over the web, but I've so far found no news as to what happened at the Stanley Hotel on the weekend of November 16th. So I can only conclude that the initial tests of this amazing device have proved so absolutely astounding and overwhelming in their results that the investigators dare not go public with the results. <laughs> For fear like of just rocking the, the world with their, with their results. That's awesome. <laughs> absolutely. So if anyone has any information on what really happened at the Stanley Hotel November 16th, I want you to call Stephen at his home and talk to him. <laughs> yeah. Come by. Come by yeah. his house. He, he our, our, our call in the show. We, that's what we really want. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 That's, I'm, that, what, what did I say? I meant to call Yeah, him. yeah. Call it, call it, you know, call us at, you know. Uh. <laughs> okay. Oh, I guess that means we're done with. I, yeah, I think so. Let's bring, let's bring our guest on. Why don't you introduce her? All right, absolutely. Well, uh, tonight we're, we're we're very pleased to have PJ Manny with us. PJ is a writer and futurist. Uh, she's based in Los Angeles, California. Uh, PJ is on the board of directors for the World Transhumanist Association and. She's a senior associate at the Foresight Nanotech Institute, and she's on the scientific advisory board for the Lifeboat Foundation. Now, PJ comes to the world of the future by way of Hollywood, where she was involved in the development of such movies as Hook, and It Could Happen to You, and Universal Soldier, 
and she was also a writer for two of our favorite TV shows on Fast Forward Radio, Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess. PJ is currently working on a novel which she describes as a political techno-thriller, which promises to have some fun stuff about human enhancement and nanotech right up our alley. So we're really looking forward to seeing that. PJ, welcome to Fast Forward Radio. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're so delighted that uh, we were able to set this up. And uh, we got a lot of stuff that we could get into this evening, but I thought we would start out. Uh, we had swapped some emails about an essay that you've written uh, well, actually, I don't know how recently. I've read it recently, so it seems recent to me. But uh, an essay you wrote uh, on the subject of uh, technology and empathy. Could you give us a little bit of background on, uh, on what led you to write that and, and what that deals with? Sure. Uh, the World Transhumanist Association had talked about uh, doing a book of essays on transhumanist subjects. And I had been talking on the chat lists with this group about issues of empathy and technology, and it got a big response, and it seemed to beg some writing on it. So uh, I offered the idea, and they took it. Now, unfortunately, the book has yet to find a publisher, so it's on my website, uh, the essay. And, and we'll, be, we'll be providing a link to that uh, on, the, uh, on, on the Speculus web notes. That's great. Thank you. For that, so, so folks uh, get a chance to take a look at that. Hopefully they'll find a publisher for that. I think uh, that, that sounds interesting. What were some of the other topics that were in, were in, that were in the book? Oh, golly. Um, <laughs> Transhumanism is a big subject. Um, okay. And they, they covered a lot of ground, but they had some really interesting writers as well, people like Bill Bainbridge and George uh, Dvorsky uh, from Canada. I don't know if you know his work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We know George. Yeah. Sure. George. <laughs> you know George. Everyone knows George. Um, and... It was it was really an, uh, there was an awful lot of subject matter uh, from ethics, bioethics. Um, oh golly, where do you begin? <laughs> yeah, well, just the, the gamut, everything that WTA deals with. Yeah. That's uh, you know putting her on the spot like that, Phil, is a bit like asking us, "What have you written about at the Speculist?" Right. Well, yeah. that's that's easy for me. I would I would I would come back and I would say, eh. Uh, a lot of stuff. <laughs> a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'd, I'd bring I'd, I'd bring up the the most recent one. Just start reading. That was, that was <laughs> That's right. So sorry, sorry, PJ. I didn't mean to put you on the spot with that. That's, that's okay. Um, so yeah, what what it did get me thinking though was you know for me empathy has always been the big issue, uh, whether it's thinking in terms of the future or thinking in terms of the present, because all you have to do is look around you and see how a lack of empathy has really gotten us into pretty much all the trouble we get into, uh, be it wars, be it uh, misunderstandings, be it hatreds, etc., generally stems from a lack of empathy. Um, the issue in the future becomes even more dire because you have the problem of what happens if we no longer are the same people meaning there's some people who are enhanced, some people who are not enhanced. Uh, what if the species starts to split, which is, of course, one of the big issues in transhumanism. Right. Um, I'd like to put it out there right now that I am not a techno-utopian. I do not believe that uh, technology will save us. Um, I believe that technology is uh, completely uh, neutral, morally neutral. For every stick we use to dig up food, we used another one to bash someone's head in. So really it depends on how we use it 
is how it's going to affect us. So if that's true, let's 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 start with that. Okay. If it's if it's true that um, every stick we pick up, we can either you know plow a field or uh, plow into the neighbor's yard or something like that. Right. Um, <laughs> is is there really then a problem with technology making us any more or less uh, uh, empathetic, or 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 making us more or less anything? I mean, if it's neutral. Uh, is, it, is it really reasonable for us to worry about whether technology uh, reduces our, our level of empathy? Well, again, it's all how it's used. Uh, the whole idea of uh, turning swords into plowshares goes the other way, too. Um, you can use any technology for good purposes or for bad purposes, um, for empathetic purposes or for manipulative purposes, and especially with communications technologies, when you're talking about things from, for instance, existing technologies that we have now, like gaming, um, where you have oh, these massive multi-user games, for instance. Um, this is something, when you think about it, is an extraordinary advance in entertainment and communication. How are we using it? Um, there's traditional gaming, like we're used to seeing the shoot-em-ups and uh, this, um, you know, single-shooter games, things like that. But there's a whole new group of gaming and gamers that are developing called serious games. Um, there's a uh, man named Ian Bogost, for instance, at a company called Persuasive Games who writes on the subject. Uh, in fact, I think MIT just published a book on the subject about the power of using gaming to really change people's minds about things. Now, here's where you get to draw the line to, you know, for good or for evil, if you will. Um, do we persuade people to understand bigger issues, to understand people we've never come to, un you know, we don't, we don't know and who might, we might consider the other, and the other is usually the person, the group who, or people who are demonized uh, within a society. Um, they're often from another culture. Um, or are we going to use it to condition us to abuse the other? Now, for instance, um, I've just read about uh, a Swiss site. And I'm going to have to try to find the links for you for this because this is brand new information to me. Um, a Swiss site, a Swiss political party, which has some uh, serious racist Overtones. In fact, they have billboards where they have three white sheep kicking a black sheep off of the Swiss flag. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I mean, serious stuff. I've heard of these guys. Um, I think Little Green Footballs has been all over these guys lately. Yes, probably. Yes, exactly. Um, well, they're now using games to promote their racist cultural Swiss agenda. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, or you can look at, for instance, the Left Behind game series. Now, there's a game series that sends shivers up my spine. Um, you get to play being on the side of Jesus' army, whose goal is to basically kill all the non-believers. <laughs> it's like, whoa. Apocalyptic there. It's, exactly. Um, now, we know that when you immerse yourself in a story, and this is where the essay sort of comes around for me, when you immerse yourself in a story... You put yourself in the shoes of someone who you are not. Now, traditionally, when we are doing storytelling, um, be it in a novel, short story, but it can also be television, movies, games, 
Um, this person is someone who we're not familiar with. We're not necessarily part of their culture. But we learn how to be in their shoes and feel for them and feel for their understanding and things. Now, in the history of storytelling, and certainly in the essay I talk about the history of the novel, which is about a thousand-year-old storytelling form, if you follow the history of the novel, we very clearly have followed social liberalization in world culture, follows right on the heels of these stories being told, whether it's um, equal rights for women, um, the plight of the poor, orphans, etc. If you look at so much of literature, often the underdog is the person whose shoes you're in. I think in, in the essay you mentioned uh, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Well, that's, that's the biggie, because that book, um, that was the second biggest, most read book in the world in the 19th century. The, the first wow. was the Bible. Wow. Num- number two in the world was Uncle Tom's Cabin. And when you realize that almost every literate American read that book, and Abraham Lincoln himself thought the book absolutely um, helped bring about the Civil War mm-hmm. because it galvanized the North. Even people who, who never thought of themselves as abolitionists suddenly started thinking, wow, you know, this slave thing, this is way worse than we thought. Um, I, you know, yeah, I, I don't think we should have slaves. <laughs> it became a new thought for a lot of these people. Yeah. Um, people who had never been politicized before became politicized. Um, and interestingly, the book also, I mean, from, from the worldwide cultural standpoint, the book got read by a lot of other colonial cultures who felt that their people were being enslaved. This wasn't just read by Americans, right. um, which is why the book has had so much power uh, globally. But that's that's certainly the huge example. But you know, you can look at you know Dickens and Dostoevsky and E.M. Forrester, and you, you can just you, you think of all, almost any major great novelist has done something to open up our minds about a group or a, a type of individual who we would have considered less than at a certain point in our history. Right. I was just I was just thinking uh, if you've ever seen. Uh... Uh, I think it's in The King and I, but I know it's definitely in the uh, the remake, uh, Anna and the King. There's this exchange between the uh, this this British woman who's a teacher and the King of Siam, who's uh, not unsympathetic to President Lincoln, who had even written him a letter about how he could uh, send him some elephants if he wanted to help him win his war. <laughs> yes, I remember that. It's very cute. But 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 who under, under no circumstances wanted that book. Uncle Tom's Cabin distributed widely in his country. He didn't want people reading that book at all because, uh, for exactly the reasons that uh, that, uh, that that you were talking about, very he, dangerous he, ideas. Yeah, oh yeah, ideas, ideas are always dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> the most. Yeah. Um, so, so my big concern in terms about bringing this back to technology is that if you can use storytelling to create empathy, you also can use storytelling to destroy empathy. And we've seen that in our history as well, where um, propaganda is often used to create the enemy, the other, um, to demonize them, and which only, again, creates more conflict. You know, I, I think that one, one important thing about empathy is that it's always easier to hate somebody you don't know. We're wired for it. Yeah. We're actually wired to hate instead of to love. 
um, you know, when you, and, and that's that's what the fascinating thing to me again when this now very early study of mirror neurons, which is uh, I think some of the most fascinating um, neuroscience that's going on right now, is first of all empathy is not just a human trait. It seems to be a mammalian trait. They they can see modeling behavior in mice. Um, and rats, they've done tests where if one mouse sees another mouse suffering, it suffers too. And it actually suffers in the parts of the brain where the other mouse is suffering, I mean, in terms of, of, of its, its uh, neurons. So this is something that mammals are wired to do if we have someone to model. On the other hand, we also know from neuroscience, that we're wired to look at everybody who's outside of our family group or our tribe as the other. And that might not even be the mammal brain. It sounds like that's like the reptilian brain. Right, exactly. That, yeah. That's pre- pretty much every animal brain. Right. Um, and we can't forget that that's what we are. Yeah. Well, and I guess that's where transhumanism comes in, uh, the, the opportunity to perhaps rewire ourselves. Well, well yes, and, and here's... Uh, if I may go back for one second, sure. um, sort of my take on transhumanism, because it will <laughs> affect the rest of the conversation. Um, you know, I think we're already transhuman. I think transhumanism, personally, is a word that people have attached themselves to because it symbolizes something to them, uh, the, the progression of the species, the improvement of the species, etc. But to me, we have always been doing this. We are a tool-making species. We have always been improving ourselves. It's clothing, eyeglasses, <laughs> you name, even, even uh, and I, Phil and I talked about this some at the Foresight thing, even the idea of writing technologies. We're now, you know, from the moment we started writing 5,000 years ago, we were able to put some of our memories someplace else and not have to worry about it and come back to it whenever we needed to. So we've been improving ourselves for thousands of years. And if you, if you look at some of the uh, recent studies by evolutionary biologists saying that we are, in fact, biologically evolving much faster than we anticipated, you know, the whole idea that we were somehow the end point of humanity, why anyone in their whole life would ever believe that, I, I can't imagine <laughs> if you're calling yourself a scientist and ever thinking, you know, this was it. <laughs> we have achieved it. <laughs> we have um, arrived. Right, we have arrived, exactly. Um, so the fact that we are evolving biologically anyway, the fact that we have had our own evolution in our hands from in a crude way for thousands of years and in an unbelievably refined way <laughs> coming into this century uh, where we really have our own evolution in our hands, um, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. This is this is when we can't say do over and pretend it never happened. So, so the the process of of, of becoming transhuman or actually um, it, that that we are transhuman. You can't You're transhuman. That I'm bell. transhuman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, okay. there's 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 no there is no human as well. This is the poster child for human. There is no picture in the dictionary <laughs> that sums up everything that ever was or ever will be human. It's a continuum. Right. Okay, let me just uh, stop to say this is 
Fast Forward Radio on Blog Talk Radio. We're talking with PJ Manny. Uh, if you would like to call, if you have a question for PJ, you can dial in at 347-215-8972. PJ, I recently told Phil that I, I claim Google as part of my brain now. Uh, <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. I swear, you know, it, it's gotten to the point, and it's really embarrassing because I don't know if you guys have kids, but, you know, I've got school-age children, and it's, Mommy, I have a question. And, you know, my son's in sixth grade, so he's studying right now, you know, ancient civilizations. And, Mommy, so what's the big deal about ancient Egypt? You know, I was like, honey, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, give me just one minute here. Give me just one minute. What does Wikipedia say? Yeah. Uh, it, it, well, and, and honestly, I scanned the wiki, and I can spout out, you know, the salient points of ancient Egyptian culture. It's extraordinary. Um, you know, I, I joke about between iPods and the research I can do on Google. I'm, I am a different person than I was 10 years ago. There's no, no question. question that we are. I was just talking to Stephen about this before, before the show. I was frustrated because um, there, there were a couple of sites, there were a couple of stories that I'd seen in the last couple of weeks that I thought related to things we were going to talk about tonight, and I couldn't find them. And the reason I couldn't find them was because I never blogged them. If, if, wow! If, if I so the blog is a part of your brain. Your 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 brain now. Right. It is something is part of my, you know, my <laughs> ongoing experience. If I put it in the blog, and I was doing Google searches on all these phrases that should have found it, and none of it did. And I'm like, I, I'm really annoyed because I know if I had blogged that, I would know exactly where to find it, and it would be part of you know, like like my conceptual space. And it's not because I because I didn't blog it. I'm 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 the symbiotic creature between you know this this human and my blog now it's so true and it's funny because i find that when my internet goes down oh my god i really truly we when we moved this summer um we had a horrendous time getting verizon to hook up our our telephones it ended up taking six weeks and for those six weeks oh, no i had no internet Ooh. And for someone like myself, who's a writer, who I live on the Internet, my, my book is unbelievably high-tech oriented, and I'm constantly researching. And it's just high-tech oriented. It's, it's you know, a political thriller, so it's about politics and American history and everything else. I, I was dead in the water. I was dead in the water from communications, from emails. You know, I'm sorry. If the, the, I'm totally, I'm, I'm mind melded. <laughs> yeah, but but this, but I can lose the TV a lot easier than the. Oh, I, I can go for weeks without television. Yeah, <laughs> I cannot yeah. go without well, the computer. Plus, you can always watch something on YouTube if you. Yeah. You know, if you're dying to well, that's it exactly. <laughs> but but surely during that time, then you were able to get out novels and read and uh, build your uh, empathy for other people, right? Isn't that? Uh... Well, you know, it's interesting because that's you know one of the things that. Um, there's a wonderful novelist named Jane Smiley, Pulitzer Prize winner, who wrote a book called um, 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel. And she actually talks about how novel reading builds empathy. That that's a... Um, and again, she, de she doesn't say... There's no causality. She doesn't say that if you don't read novels, you will not have empathy. However, she also makes the correlation that people who are narcissists don't read novels, which I thought was fascinating. But they've actually done a study that narcissists don't read novels. Well, what are they, they, they think that their lives are, the, are, are, are That's the only so much more interesting. <laughs> 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 They're so much in, more interested in themselves. How would, they, yeah, how would any of that stuff be interesting to them? <laughs> yeah. Well, one, one, of the, one of the things that, um, that uh, struck me was the idea that maybe visual uh, 
forms of storytelling and maybe interactive uh, by extension, although I don't think you said that necessarily, don't uh, bring about this quality of empathy the way saying reading would. What's the difference between them? Why, why would that be the case? Well, and it, this is actually something I would love, if anybody is out there listening, I would love somebody to do a real scientific study on this um, because this storytellers will tell you that the non-visual story creates a deeper psychological experience than the visual story because what you do is in your mind's eye, you create the story. So if you're reading or if you're listening to a storyteller, whatever that input is, you're taking your personal experience, and your, which includes your imagination because that is actually part of your personal experience, and you're creating that world in your mind. That reinforces, and if you think of it from, again, from a neurological level, you literally, you've already got the neurons there, you're just reinforcing that. Mm-hmm. Um, that creates a much more powerful empathetic experience than visual storytelling because you're getting that from the outside. It could be not all how you imagined it. I mean, <laughs> imagine all the books you've seen made into movies, and you go, that's not how I saw it at all. Right. right. Yeah. Oh, um, like that. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, you cast who? Uh, so, so it's a very, interestingly, it's a more passive experience uh, to watch something. Now, gaming is not a passive experience. Gaming is... I guess what they call the, the lean-in versus lean-back technologies. Right. Lean-back is television, lean-in is gaming. Um, so it's certainly not passive at, at one level. But again, on another level, you're not creating that world. Someone right. has created that world for you. Skull cinema is the way uh, Stephen King has always described the novels. I, th- I think that's, I think that, you know, you really are. I mean, correct. you have to create the whole world inside your brain. Absolutely correct. Um, which, again, by creating the world you are also creating the characters in that world. And you will have a more empathetic relationship with those characters because, in essence, they're parts of yourself. When they talk about uh, authors and they say, well, you know, what character was most like you? Well, they're all a little bit like you. They're all little aspects of you. You, Right. You know, even the most horrible characters, there's something you can relate to. Um, Even if it's you know, saying, wow, they're really horrible. (laughs) It's coming from somewhere inside you. Um, And that's the same thing, again, with, with, again, reading or or listening to stories. Yeah. Right. Well, there's definitely something to the the idea of the the, the lean back versus the, 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 the lean in idea. I can, I I can definitely see that. Um, I, I was, I was racking my brain after I read your essay. I was trying to think, okay, now I know I've got some great examples of plays and movies that I've seen that just utterly filled me with empathy. And I, and I, they can. I'm not, I would never say that they're, they're absolutely empathy-free. <laughs> they're not at all empathy-free. In fact, they, they can create empathy. I'm just saying that there's an added empathy. Oh, sure, yeah. absolutely. I mean, anyway, what I finally came up with was Schindler's List. I said, okay, there, there. That's a, that's, a, that's a good example. That, that one evokes some empathy. You know, oh, in our my chat problem room. is with Schindler's List and stuff like that is anything having to do with Nazis and the Holocaust. I mean, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so there, I, I can't actually watch it. It's, right. uh, it's, it's over oh, yeah. for me. I, I'm weeping from the first frame, and it's over. <laughs> it, that movie disturbed me for weeks. Uh, I couldn't get it out of my head for a long time. Um, 
I, I was, in our chat room, uh, our, our good friend and regular listener, Matt, uh, mentions uh, that the Internet has the potential for, uh, for creating empathy. It's sort of what I was kind of getting to earlier, that you know, it's easy to hate people you don't know. And perhaps the Internet creates possibilities, uh, maybe a space for getting to know people that you would never have an opportunity to know before. Well, that's one of the things we've talked about, Stephen, is how, the, how technology has enabled connections between people that never could have existed before. Right. And uh, we use ourselves as an example. Here we are, best of friends, guys, you know, co-doing this um, radio show together every week, co-doing this blog together. You know, how would we have ever even met without the Internet, right? How no would, chance yeah, at all. How, how would we ever even no know chance. each let me, other? So, let me throw, let me throw a, 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 a wrench in there for a moment. Sure. Absolutely. I totally agree. The, the Internet is an extraordinary connective engine. But here's the flip side. The flip side is how many times do you go into chat rooms or go into sites of ide- about ideas or concepts that you are not already allied to? That's true. You, you, go, you tend to go into the echo chambers, don't you? Exactly right. And yeah. the problem becomes with all of this personalized media that we're having more and more difficulty knowing what the other people are saying, listening, honestly listening to it, as opposed to getting it filtered through our given persuasions uh, uh, squawk box. You know, whoever's got the bullhorn for the uh, political or social uh, background you come from, you tend to listen to. Right. And you're not going to listen to the other side from their own lips. So with, with, again, the whole idea of personal media, we're actually creating these echo chambers. And even, you know, with, with social networking, you can't assume social networking is creating any kind of empathy. What, instead, I actually liken a lot of it, especially the MySpace kind of, you know, are you my friend? How many friends do you have? <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a prostitution. You know, there's no... Um, these people aren't your friends. It's, you know, love me, want me, buy me, click on friend. Um, there's, no, there, there's no real relationship. There's no real empathy building. It's, oh, my God, you think he's hot? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> oh, um, gosh. But, but ultimately, it doesn't, this goes back to what, what technology does is it enables and it makes so much easier all the stuff that we did anyway. Right, absolutely. Right, so we can we can make friends. We can actually it it makes it makes it possible to interact with people in ways that you couldn't before, which also makes all kinds of negative interactions yes possible that that, that weren't possible before. Because I was just thinking, you know, there are a lot of people who go on to sites um, where where the views are polar opposite of what they believe, so they control. Right, people who go onto those sites so they can leave nasty comments and 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 say right, terrible. But that's, their, that's their modus operandi. They're looking to troll. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so they can do that. But but even um, <laughs> on something like the speculus, where we don't do poli- political talk, right? We 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 really try to veer away from politics and religion and 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 keep it on the the topics that that we want to do. We'll occasionally get blog commenters who just don't really seem to grasp. Um, uh, how you talk to people, you know. I mean, uh, just kind of the, 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 and not so much the speculist. I think I guess I see this more in other blogs. I should say I don't want to talk about my readers so much, but, uh, but but you see this just basic uh, lack of connection with 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 
how you interact with other people. And, and that, that seems to be part of what um, is kind of this emerging and, and rapidly growing geek culture that, uh, that, that we contend with. So, so is it, it, you know, and hey, look, I'm, I'm all for geek culture. I am a geek. <laughs> and that's so refreshing to, to find a, 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 a female geek who's just died in the wool geek. I mean, that's, that's cool. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm, we got a lot of geek these days. Born of geeks, so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so really, you, you, that was you were you were destined to be a geek, I guess. Oh, hey, my father was like one of the first, you know, members of the New York Science Fiction Club or some such thing back in the nineteen oh golly, probably forties, fifties, something like that. So yeah, <laughs> it was pretty much faded. Oh, that's well, great. Well, one of the things one of the things we've talked about is the distinction actually between geeks and nerds that we make on the speculist is that we've claimed that uh, while, while geeks and nerds live in the same world and they, uh, they know a lot of the same things, um, geeks have a certain level of ability to interact with, um, with their fellow human beings that, that nerds lack. So maybe I'm talking more about nerd culture. Maybe that, that should have been the term that I used, Stephen. Not, not well, it, 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 yeah, it's interesting because there's – I find, especially working within, again, futurist issues – and I say this knowing that some some of these people will be listening to me, um, that there there are a lot of people who have difficulty communicating within both geek and nerd culture, uh, who for whom you know it's not the top of their skill set, who are fantastic and brilliant at all kinds of things, but but social interaction is not their their strong suit. Okay, well, we've got a little fun example of that. Before, before we roll that, though, Stephen, I just want to say this is Fast Forward Radio on Blog Talk Radio. We're talking with PJ Manny. And, PJ, we have burnt the half hour up much faster than we realized. Can we keep wow. an additional segment? Yes, yeah, stay on with us if you will. <laughs> okay, I would love to. Okay, fantastic. Right. I, Steve, so, so, so let's, let's wrap that background and let's talk about, uh, let's, let's talk about nerds, who, uh, nerds and geeks and, and some of those uh, social interactive disabilities that uh, some of us have suffered from in the past. Stephen, uh, go ahead and uh, I'll just set this up. This is a little audio clip from, uh, uh, PJ, have you seen the CBS sitcom, The Big Bang Theory? No, I haven't. You I need love, to. It's I hilarious. know, I hear that. You're, you're, you're not the first. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think what you're about to hear is, 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 a, is a representative clip. Uh, just, just to set it up, this is, uh, you've got uh, two uh, geeks living, uh, they're, they're roommates, they live across the hall from this gorgeous young woman, uh, they're, they're all they're all hanging out. Um, uh, the, the, the two geeks and, and two friends who have come over, uh, and uh, she has come and asked the the one guy Leonard to do to do him to do her a favor. And uh, this is uh, a little follow up discussion that that occurs between them. So, go ahead and play that, Stephen. Anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> you don't have any other plans. Do you want to join us for Typhoon and the Superman movie marathon? A marathon? Wow, how many Superman movies are there? You're kidding, right? <laughs> yeah, I do like the one where Lois Lane falls from the helicopter and Superman swooshes down and catches her. Which one was that? One. <laughs> you realize that scene was rife with scientific inaccuracy. <sighs> yes, I know. Men can't fly. No, no. Let's assume that they can. <laughs> Lois Lane is falling, accelerating at an initial rate of 32 feet per second per second. Superman swoops down to save her by reaching out two arms of steel. Miss Lane, who is now traveling at approximately 120 miles an hour, hits them and is immediately sliced into three equal pieces. 
unless Superman matches her speed and decelerate. In what space, sir? In what space? She's two feet above the ground. You know, frankly, if he really loved her, he'd let her hit the pavement. It'd be a more merciful death. <laughs> Excuse me, your entire argument is predicated on the assumption that Superman's flight is a feat of strength. Are you listening to yourself? It is well established that Superman's flight is a feat of strength. It is an extension of his ability to leap tall buildings, an ability he derives from exposure to Earth's yellow sun. And you don't have a problem with that? How does she fly at night? A, a combination of the moon's solar reflection and the energy storage capacity of Kryptonian skin cells. <laughs> I have 2,600 comic books in there. I challenge you to find a single reference to Kryptonian skin cells. Challenge accepted. We're locked out. Also, the pretty go left. <laughs> okay. I love that. And let's just make sure that uh, that PJ's still with us. I'm so here. Okay, <laughs> the pretty girl has not left. Us. Okay, good. Well, I think that that's the classic line at the end. That she's left. I mean, in the middle, they're they're in their own world, and she's she's the straight person that just. I know these guys. They're on the chat list with with uh, the Extropy Institute and the World Trade <laughs> Center. Are you kidding? That is shockingly similar to conversations I have had in my life. I mean, I watch that and I go, I, I, you know, it's like I've been there. I've had that conversation before, you know. And, uh, yeah, I love the, the guy, Raj, the, the character Raj, who um, one of the things about him is he is so, uh, he, he, he has social anxiety disorder, and when he gets around Penny, he can't talk at all. So the the only line you get out of him from that whole interchange is the pretty girl left. <laughs> Once she's gone, he can announce that uh, he can announce that she's not there anymore. But um, but the, you know that that kind of uh, that that kind of sums it up. These these guys have um, a tremendous amount of knowledge. Some of it on useful subjects. Some of it on not terribly useful subjects. Um, but uh, the the, the desire to reach out to another human being, which which Leonard demonstrates there at the beginning, hey, Penny, wait, you want to come over? We're having Thai food, we're watching movies, gets subsumed as soon as his, as, as soon as his buddy wants to get in an argument about, uh, uh, you, you know... Uh, the uh, physics of Superman. Exactly, yeah. right. Yeah. About the, the, the problems that... Uh, that would occur there. Now, yeah, when, whenever anybody whips out a calculator, you know you're in big trouble. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, I guess, why are why are we like that? Why are uh, why why are geeks so? Uh, why do we have such nerdy tendencies? I suppose. Oh man, if I had the answer to that one, boy, I could bottle it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. Well, I think nerds and geeks really want to understand the world around them in a way, in, in, a, in a very specific way, um, in a way that many people simply don't have the need. They need to understand how the world works. Right. And lots of people go through life, and I find this hard to imagine, they go through life not having to know how the world works. In fact, not actually caring at all. Yep. Can you imagine that? No. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't either. No, I cannot imagine. But, being but able you know, all, all, all three of us, though, PJ, I read a little bit about your bio. I mean, you've had you have a successful social life. You're involved in with other people's lives in many, many ways. Phil is successful in his, you know, in his social life. He has wife and kids, and you know, myself as well. There are those who get so into these worlds that they're not that they 
they live very lonely lives too. So they absolutely do. Yeah. And it, look, we've you know, I've, there, there's a bit of an elephant in the room, and I'm noticing uh, on the the your attached uh, chat blog, people have have uh, several times used the word, for instance, autistic. Yeah. There's a huge range of how people are wired, and you know, one of the things that that I know. Um, there's a woman named Ann Corwin who I respect an enormous amount who is autistic, uh, member who's a transhumanist, um, who writes a great deal about neurodiversity. And she's a very high-functioning autist um, who writes remarkably on the subject. And when, it is fascinating because on one hand she's extraordinarily articulate and very sensitive to many things. On the other hand, it's fascinating when she when she does not read the emotional content of something, let's say you've, you've written. And she and I have I've I found fascinating. We've gotten into arguments online where we realize we're just simply misunderstanding each other's things because I'm assuming she can read the emotional content of my writing. She isn't, and she assumes that I'm taking everything she says completely literally. Yeah. Now. You know what I find fascinating is nerds and geeks. There is a high percentage, and I'm, I'm just going to come out and say it because certainly other people have as well, of of people in the autistic spectrum among nerds and geeks. Mm-hmm. It's a very specific way of looking at the world. They want to know how it works. That's how they make their way through the world by understanding how that world works in its physical sense, its material sense. That's how they deal with the world. Uh, there's, it's a, there's a type of autism, and I'm, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but it's Asperger's syndrome? Asperger's, yes. Asperger's, okay. And that's basically, these, these people are able to function. They, they usually hold down jobs, and they're, you know, they might be a math oh, look, professor. Many, many people who are in autistic spectrum are actually quite high-functioning. Right. You know, we, we see a lot of the, the children um, who are non-functioning as examples, but they're, the enormous percentage of the population, if actually examined, would, would actually be high fun- considered high-functioning. But anyway, go on. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and these people are high-functioning, and... Uh, and, and and you don't and you may not even realize that they have that you, they would even be considered autistic. But you're right; they're wired a little bit different from the rest of the world. So, well, and, would, and and the question becomes where where did the new wiring come from? Is this a is this a product of uh, is this a product of technology? Is this a product of uh, how? Um, because it, it does seem that uh, setting aside for a moment the fact that we can diagnose it much better than we could in the past that there is just a lot more uh, autism diagnosed today than ever, there ever was in the past. I mean, that it seems to be a much, much more prevalent problem. Is, is that um, an effect of uh, technology, or is it indirectly an effect? Is it something in the environment? Actually, I think, it's, I think it's interestingly possibly the other way around. I think that technology enables people to function more highly when they might have some part, you know, autistic spectrum issues. Um, I think that, A, they're attracted to technology because that's something that is a very tangible thing that, that they can, they, they grok, they get it, uh, and they can work with. Um, and I think they have used to their advantage, interestingly. Um, I mean, all you have to do is look at Silicon Valley. Um, a friend of mine who's an attorney in Silicon Valley says one of the big issues 
he's a father, has a child in high school. One of the big issues is how many people who I guess you would diagnose now as adult autists are marrying and having children in Silicon Valley, and their children are autistic. Right. Right. So the percentage of kids in the autistic spectrum in the public schools <laughs> in Silicon Valley are unbelievably high compared right. to, let's say, other communities. Now, they're all functioning just fine because they're working within a world where that's not considered unusual. Now, some people think that autism might be, in, bizarrely, an evolution. This might be a form of... A, a, a more socially fit. That's interesting. Uh, in in light of the earlier discussion about empathy and the ability for people to interact, are we evolving away from certain kinds of uh, human relationships? Is that is that what that would be saying? Possibly. You know, who knows? I you know I have no <laughs> I have no investment in any of these ideas. Um, but I I am I am personally fascinated by um, the. Issues around autism within society today, because we clearly have, and, and, and you know, going from Hollywood, where everyone is so touchy-feely and everyone is so um, deeply connected emotionally, even, it, even as they lash out at each other in that dog-eat-dog -dog world, right. um, starting to work now with scientists and futurists, etc., who are not wired that way, has been fascinating, because it really exposed me personally to an entire world where there are lots of people who, you know, um, reading social situations, empathizing quickly, wasn't at the top of their skill set. Let me ask this, just a little bit of parenting, uh, just a parenting question. If you've got a child that is obviously, you know, really bright, I mean, do you, do you, uh, do you make a big deal out of it or do you – are you, are you know? Do you just uh, you know just act like it's no big deal? How, how, how as a parent would you take care? I mean, would you treat that situation? Well, there <laughs> there are a couple of schools of thought. Interestingly, and and I tend to believe this one from my own personal experience. Um, there's a very strong school of thought that says don't tell them too much that they're smart because kids need to know that it's about effort and it's about involvement. It's not about how talented or bright they are, that when kids are told all the time that they're so smart and they're so talented, they tend not to try. And from my own experience being told that, I just, I floated through school. You know, there was no problem, skipped grades, you know, the whole bit. And I didn't try as hard as I could have. I probably could have done tons more if somebody had actually said, you know what, effort's what it's about. Yeah. It's about, you know, how you, how you invest into what you're doing. Um, and I can even see it with my own kids, that at a certain level, you know, you can be the smartest person in the world and do nothing. We all know, we all grew up with kids who were clearly geniuses, and they did nothing. They were lost. Yeah. Maybe but, because they were told they were smart. Actually, there's a piece, uh, this in uh, Scientific American that uh, I, I picked up somewhere. Stephen also the New Yorker, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, they talked about, about that very thing. Maybe you don't want to, you don't want to tell kids that they're they're smart. Of course, with my own child, I have to tell everyone else how smart she is. But. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, sir. <laughs> but, but, 
that's a, that's a different matter completely. Well, I think it's, this has just been fascinating. I, I hate to I hate to wrap this up because we're I, I know we're going to come up on our time, Stephen, and uh, they will uh, they will what stop recording us at the, at some. No, point? no, the, we don't. They don't stop recording us, but we may lose our live audience. So those in the chat room, if you get cut off, that's why uh, we're coming up on our one hour here. But uh, I mean, we, you know, we can keep going. Okay, so if we go over, you, 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 everyone you can hear it. You can hear it later. You can hear the rest on the uh, on the MP3. So that gives us a, a little bit of a little bit of a buffer here to wrap this up. That's good. You know, one, one of the things that uh, that that makes me think is that uh, getting back to the getting back to the, the the notion of the kind of ascendancy of the uh, of, of the the geeks in uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, actually, I had a discussion about this at the Boulder Futurist salon a few weeks ago and we talked about this uh, the the fact that there's a spot in the world in, in the economic food chain for geeks right that maybe didn't necessarily exist to the extent that it that it does today and absolutely that that uh, technology has enabled that niche and it's you know talk about you know the triumph of a group who was the other you know, Stephen and I were talking earlier about how we were we were geeks before being a geek was cool. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, being a geek still isn't exactly cool. But I think it's very interesting that a show like The Big Bang Theory can exist, and the the nerds, the geeks on that show are not the funny neighbors who were there for laughs. I mean, the characters are funny and they're there for laughs, but they're the heroes of the show. They, Absolutely, they, we've definitely in the last twenty years, you know, Bill Gates is our cultural hero. Right. Uh, regardless of what you think of his material, his software, um, he, you know, he and others like him represent. I mean, technology is where the world is going. It's always been that way, you know. But we we don't look at anything. We what, what's the phrase? If you were born with it, it isn't technology. Right. So, but the world is is as we often discuss. Technology is accelerating, so technology is becoming more and more evident. Technology has always existed in everyone's lives. It's just the change as the economic engine is what's so staggering, and I believe will only become more so. Um, in fact, it can only become more so as, as again, our technology accelerates. And so the change is not only uh, in, in terms of what we're going to experience technologically, but I, I guess more importantly, What's going to be happening between us as individuals and and within the overall culture is going to be changing as rapidly too. Well, and and also the entire idea of um, control of that technology, open source, and um, the idea that suddenly technology isn't something that a company somewhere dispenses to you. It is something that you you utilize and create yourselves. Right. So who knows? Maybe maybe this is the next evolutionary step. Um, you know, maybe becoming more technologically based. Certainly, uh, you know, the, the guys I know who I now look back at and go, "Wow, okay, you're you're, you're autistic in a way." Um, these are the guys who are dealing with technology a hell of a lot better than I am. Right. All so right. they, they, they've got they've got the they've got the step forward there. Perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> they, <laughs> they are they are the evolutionary step. They're evolutionarily you know, I, ahead of us. I'm the wow. Neanderthal. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all are compared to them. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Well, PJ, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the uh, taking the time to speak with us tonight and uh, for staying on for the additional segment. Um, I think no, no, we're, it's been a lot of fun. Good. Well, I tell you what, we're we're just we're just gonna while while we while I've still got your recording, I'm just gonna get your commitment right now that you'll come back on again sometime in the near future. And we can, uh, I would love to. And when I can actually really talk about my book, um, I would love to talk to you guys about it because boy, all this stuff comes up. That oh, would yeah. be. That would be great. We look forward to having that uh, to, to to having the opportunity to interview you about the book. Uh, when 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 can we look forward to seeing that? <laughs> Who knows? Um, I'm hopefully, <laughs> hopefully actually finishing my first draft at uh, the beginning of uh, this coming year. So yeah, we'll, we'll, well see we what don't need it. We'll, from there. <laughs> I don't think we need to wait for that. I I, I think that uh, PJ, you have a lot to talk about on many subjects. You know, we never got a good Xena or Hercules story. Oh, that's right. That's right. Before we let you go, can you tell us one just just one antidote? One. Oh favorite. my God. Oh, again, that's sort of like saying, what did you write about? Uh, <laughs> What's the weirdest um, thing that ever happened working on Xena? How's that? The weirdest thing? Oh, well, I'll, I'll give you a funny one. Okay. Um, I did an episode called Is There a Doctor in the House? where um, Xena goes in to stop a war and as a sideline creates Western medicine and teaches Hippocrates everything he knows. <laughs> I <laughs> love that. Uh, yeah, right up my alley. It was perfect. <laughs> um, and in it, a, uh, an Amazon had to have she, uh, the first cesarean section. Okay, it was, should have been called the Amazonian section. Oh, right. Uh, and she gives birth, because she's giving birth to a centaur, a baby centaur. Um, <laughs> but it can't come out the normal way. It's too big. <laughs> wait, wait. Can, 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 oh, hang on. Really? Can, I just, can I stop for one moment? Yeah. Total nerd here. Because I know that on the show, Caesar was already born and, and an adult, okay? <laughs> it is the cesarean section. Oh, but it, it, interestingly, you know, if, if you look back at the shows, uh, we go through about 5,000 years of culture. <laughs> That's true. Y'all, y'all, went from, y- y'all took in everything, didn't you? Yeah, you got Homer and, and Caesar meeting the same people. I love oh, yeah, totally. So, yeah. you know, we, we just massacred history. Um, but so that was, that was a lot of fun uh, to work on, and I could only be on set for little bits of time because at the time I was pregnant with my first child, Nathaniel. So, and they were blowing smoke into this set, um, which was you know, unbelievably toxic, I'm sure. So, <laughs> My husband's so like, you're, you go in for so you're five heavily, minutes every hour. You're, uh, let me you get this right. You're heavily pregnant, and you're, you've written a story about a woman carrying a centaur. Is that right, right, which okay. I've now learned you never do, because I gave birth to my son, and after 30 hours of labor, I had an emergency C-section. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm lying there on the table, and, I, you know, 30 hours of labor, man, I'm delirious. And I'm saying over and over, and my husband's looking at me, and everyone in the room thinks I'm out of it. Uh, I'm saying, I will. Ne- I promise God, I will never write about this again. I, no, really, I will never write about having a C-section again. No, really. <laughs> and you were just sure that this was going to be a centaur. I, I was sure it was, you know, that, that one of those bits of creative irony that happens over and over in people's lives where, you know, you write something or you create something and it comes back to bite you in the ass. Well, I'm sure you got a beautiful baby out of it. And I got a fabulous door. baby, two fabulous babies. But <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's great. That. Absolutely perfect. Well, thank, thank you again, uh, PJ, for, uh, for being with us on the show. We will look forward to, uh, to talking with you again. We need to tell our listeners we're going to be an hour earlier next, next week. Uh, that would be 10 Eastern, 9 Central, 8 Mountain, 7 Pacific. And I uh, wanted to uh, uh, announce what the music's going to be. We've we're, got some exit music here. It's Brian Duncan's country punk song. 
Can you imagine? Country, I didn't know that was a genre. Country punk. I look forward to hearing that. Yeah, we'll right. call it, and the song is Wake Up. And uh, actually, it sounds to me like Western punk, but, uh, <laughs> but we'll be that as it may. I hope you all enjoy it. And, and, PJ, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Okay. Thank you, PJ. And good night, everybody. We'll catch you on the next Fast Forward Radio. Welcome to Staples. Staples Guide. This year I'm preparing my own taxes. Good for you. Yep, I'm going to be accountable. Right. Well, Staples can help with storage and filing supplies, plus software like QuickBooks and TurboTax. Go on. You have my interest. And now get TurboTax for up to $15 off at Staples. Up to 15 bucks off TurboTax? That'll pay handsome returns. Right. Thanks, Staples Guy. Depreciate it. Uh-huh. Everything you need this tax season for less, like up to $15 off TurboTax. Staples. Make more happen. In-store only. It's 4117.